excited about today's episode man like one of my colleagues is joining uh dennis holmes he is so freaking smart and knows all the things um and uh you know he's been on both sides of the pond man he you know obviously he works at facebook now here in the states but he's worked in uh uh in europe in london and he's like licensed to practice law in both i don't know where in the u.s he's licensed but uh, i think new york but i'm not positive um and he's also like a licensed barrister or whatever it is over yeah. in the eu which is which is super cool he's a he's a renaissance man renaissance yeah. privacy man Picked, he knows uh, a lot of stuff man teenage mutant ninja turtles uh because of that that renaissance capability that he's got yeah. Yeah, I love the Ninja Turtles too, by the way. Like one of my favorite TV show cartoons when I was a kid, for sure. And one of the few things that translated into my parents buying me toys. So whoever. What'd you think Mattel, of the movie? What'd you think of the movie? The, the first movie I thought was solid. You know, it's probably the first movie I watched back to back to back to back to back to back and knew all the lines and would say them out loud. Um, the second movie, I don't know. But like the first movie was A+. plus. But also, I'm like a kid and obsessed with Ninja Turtles. So like, I, I feel like my parents probably suffered through that movie quite a bit. For me, uh, it's a movie we did also um, in season three, an episode on Back to the Future, which is, uh, I don't know when, when, when that one will be out, but with Killian. And, uh, and Back to the Future, I could quote it back to front. Yeah, I think I actually can do the same for Back to the Future. It's also one of my all-time favorite movies. But I remember very clearly, like, sitting in my living room, I had the Ninja Turtles movie on VHS and yeah. uh, and just, like, watching it over and over and over again and just being super into it. Um, I had the toys, the whole deal. And I also liked, like, the ethos of the Ninja Turtles, right? Like, just, I don't know, man, it's like a good, clean cartoon, in, in, at, least, at least as I remember it. Um, and uh, super adventurous, but, like, strong female character like all kinds of interesting things happening in there maybe a little bit um goofy and quirky but but i loved it and i also love that they had a van in the video game oh the ninja turtles video game oh my god i love that thing on nintendo man that thing was a plus who's the splinter of privacy the splinter of privacy man that is are we going all the way back to like uh Brandeis and those folks are already... Dennis Dennis is you know Dennis brought up Brandeis and mm -hmm. that's one of the the that paper or whatever is one of the seminal documents in privacy yeah. so maybe one of those justices is the, the splinter maybe it's like Jules or Trevor one of these people that are currently kind of leading thought thought leaders and training privacy people so maybe it's an IAPP uh, kind of thing that is the you know splinters the sensei i i could see that um like the, i like the jules analogy quite a bit trevor too but like i don't know andy because like privacy i think there's a lot of diversity of opinion right yeah. so i think there's a lot of splinters right um in different parts of the privacy discussion because we don't all agree like as much as i love jules and trevor and they are i look to them as leaders on a lot of things we don't agree on everything i like um, your point i like your point because it's it's not just one person and it's not gonna yeah. bunch of little dojos you know privacy doesn't privacy slow dojos. down and uh and 
we've talked a lot about where privacy work is done more effectively in a law firm versus in a company environment. And I think you're going to have diversity of thought through across all of those vectors. So there's going to be really good privacy work being done in both places by lots of people and less good in, in both places too. Is it like, who's the shredder of privacy? Is it social media? Is it like Facebook, <laughs> TikTok, and Google? Are they like shredders? Are we the three? You know, who knows, right? Um, I, I'm not sure. Um, but I don't know that there's any villains, right? But I, I definitely think there's a lot of diversity of opinion. And, and I think that's good. One thing about, you know, like when I think of like organizations like EFF versus like an FPF, there's clearly like a more activist component to an EFF than there is with an FPF. And so like, I just think there's room for all of it. And uh, there's ways there's ways to be activists that that you and I have discussed that make a lot of sense in this yeah. world. Like you may not agree with Max Schrems and you may not uh, somebody. He's might, the Casey Jones of, of somebody. Of, yeah, somebody of, might of not privacy. might not think that his approach is the right approach, but like he has a right to take his approach and and do the things that he's doing. And um, I don't think he goes about it in a way in in in, in a way. Um, it, I mean, he's definitely disruptive about it. Thing, very, like, disruptive, yeah. But there's other advocates that go about it in a way that is really unsavory, and and I think there's there's room there's room for doing advocacy in in a way yeah, without being isn't a jerk. Savory, right? And isn't without being a jerk. And I definitely, I, having met Max Rams, he's not a jerk. Um, and 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 I know exactly what you mean. Like, you don't have to be boneheaded just because you have a strong point of view and, yeah. and treat people like they're stupid. And I, I definitely don't think Max does that. But there's some people in our world that do. Yeah, and they say a lot of hyperbolic things, and yeah. they say yeah. things, uh, you know, like like they're a, a decree, you know, about yeah, right, everybody's right, right. behavior. And the fact is, like whether you're a smaller company or a large company, you're visible, or you're less visible. Lots of people are trying hard to fix privacy problems and taking them seriously. And I think painting a broad brush across companies like that is really, it's not just unfair, it's dangerous. Yeah, and I think, I think it's, right. it's really bad for, for our, our world. I think you're right. Well, let's talk to Dennis and see like have him illuminate us on some of this stuff. And uh, man, let's talk Ninja Turtles, I'm down. Pizza too. Pizza, yeah. All right, all right. Here we are. We're here. We're here. Here we are. We're here. We're here with Dennis Holmes, who works with you at Facebook. It's another Facebook yeah. episode. I'm excited about it. But he's not just a Facebooker. He's been in ad tech a long time. App Nexus, law firms, consulting, uh, like a real privacy renaissance person yeah well, for real. And, and, <laughs> he's a he's an international player like there's all kinds of stuff going on yeah you and we picked, you picked teenage mutant ninja turtles as the theme here which is one of the best shows and movies ever ever you yeah. want to talk about and you know sorry that is, i'll just say like you want to talk about monetization let's create the dopest cartoon ever to sell all these little plastic figurines like what a score but anyway go let's go i love the ninja no, no, i think that like you know, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are actually really interesting because they have, first of all, they have like Renaissance painter names, which is really right. weird. Like I, as a child, I don't think I had any record. I just, everybody was talking about Donatello and Michelangelo and I had no idea about like these Italian painters. All I cared about was like pizza, the karate and like the screaming dude. <laughs> and it was like the coolest thing ever. 
Speaking of pizza, I want to show you guys something. I found, while well, I was poking around looking for backgrounds, I'm going to turn off my video for a sec. Check this out. Oh, God. Is that like an old dare poster? I don't know what this is, but this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Why do I not see it? What's wrong? You don't see it? I don't see anything. You're gone. Right. Oh, no. But the, you don't the, see even his screen? That's weird. You see my, okay, so... The world can see that it says, say no to drugs, say yes to pizza. So not with anchovies, right? No anchovies. Good, re good recollection. Good I, I don't know about you guys, but I, I hate anchovies. But I like Caesar salad. This I'm, I'm glad we're getting really substantive here. I love a good Caesar salad, but I don't like anchovies. So you just don't like it with like authentic dressing? I mean, <laughs> yeah, sort of, yeah. I like the um. Off-brand imitation Caesar dressing, I guess. Um, there's something about anchovies to me, man. I don't, I don't know. I love tuna. I love sardines. Can't make it with the anchovies. Have either of you oh, ever had? Have either of you ever had table-side Caesar salad? You know where they prepare it for you and they make the dressing right there. I've never no. had table-side, but one of my old roommates, his dad was a executive chef, and he was like, "Oh, I know how to make real Caesar dressing." So like, I've had like akin to table side where you like grind the anchovies yeah. it wasn't a process i needed to view yeah but it tasted great like i didn't need to see him making it <laughs> but it was That's delicious. such a good point okay we're way off topic but wait wait no i got one this is important because it's ninja turtles yeah so michelangelo is my favorite ninja turtle and he eats a ton of pizza and uh i have to ask a pizza topping question because it's important for the rest of the discussion Pineapples on the pizza, yes or no? I don't mind pineapple on pizza. I don't. I definitely don't. Hmm. Andy, what's your thoughts? I'm really into pizza, so let me let me <laughs> say that. Like, at, at Alice, we have to pick our five to nines, which is like what we do in life, and we put them on our email signatures. And so, pizza is on there. Tennis, pizza, and being a dad. Those are my three five to nines. So I'm really into pizza. And this question has come up a lot. We have a pizza Slack channel at Alice. So like there's conversation going on about this in different, in different arenas of my life. But when it comes to pineapple on pizza, there's two categories, right? There's people that are okay with it and people that are haters. There's no middle. There's just like, absolutely not. You know, to me, if you like it and it tastes good, eat it. I don't, I don't, I don't see the problem with it. Well, who, who needs the, who needs to hold like certain pizza toppings up into some upper echelon of pizza toppings to me? Pizza's I'm a pineapple hater, man. I think I'm a you? purist. I don't like I don't like that shit. I'll tell you this: if you like pineapples on your pizza, you don't care about privacy. So you're both wrong. Yeah, that's a really interesting philosophy. <laughs> it, it's very rational. No, but I just there's some. My sister loves pineapples on pizza. I hate it. And this used to be like the argument when we would order pizza at the house. We always end up with two mediums because I can't do the pineapples. And she loves herself a Hawaiian pizza, man. And I'm just like, this is, you got you're disgusting. It's unpatriotic, man. I'm telling you. Well, I would never order it. Like, I don't go out of my way to order. We ordered pizza two nights ago here. We don't order pineapple pizza here. Yeah. But when it's presented to me as, a, as an option, I'll down it. I'll dabble. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that free spiritedness. I can support that. Dennis, I like your uh, your 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 defense of pineapple pizza. I think we're all wrong and right at the same time. <laughs> what I was gonna say just really quickly was it's off topic and we're way off, but that's fine. <laughs> what I do, one time I was in New York City 
and I did have something prepared table side, which is the first time I'd ever had that before. And it was this Italian restaurant. So we're still in Italy, which is good, where they took this wheel of parm, I, I, like bigger than like my whole head, you know, this big, <laughs> cut it open and hollowed it out. And they just threw the pasta in there and like mixed it in the oh, bowl of parm with hot cheese poured all over it. And I was like, what the fuck is this? And, <laughs> like, so Dennis, to your point, that I needed to see table side. But like Caesar oh, yeah. salad, I agree. Didn't need that. Yeah. You sure this actually happened or were you just drunk at the Olive Garden? I was with my mom. <laughs> I didn't even know Olive Garden still existed. There's one in like Times Square, no? That's the only one I know of, to be honest. But like, I, I don't think I... I haven't been on Olive Garden. I don't think you should go to any restaurant in Times Square. Yeah, like no, of course, not. Of, course, of, course, of course not. I only know that because I saw like a Post Malone, I think it was like Jimmy Fallon episode or something where they were like eating at the Olive Garden. So wow, yeah. Just say yeah. no to Times Square. Food and Times Square. Yeah, say no to that. I'm that. Now that I can get on board with. It's like, so Dennis, you, you lived in New York, correct? You used to live there? I did. I lived in yeah. New York for about three years. So like New York to me as a, as a frequent visitor is like, I feel every time I go there, any meal is a waste if it's not great because there are so many great choices there. So Times Square is doubly bad for that. Yeah, yeah. I, I completely agree with that. And I think contrary to popular belief, great meals in New York do not have to be like have to be expensive. Totally agree. Like, like my whole mission in New York was like, this place is freaking expensive. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make it my business to get everything I can as cheap as possible. It was like a game to me. And I was able to find like an unlimited boozy brunch for $25 in the West Village with like the best food. New York is a place where you can be extravagant about what you spend on food, but it's also the best $15 dinner place in America, in my opinion. I know the LA people will get mad at me. I know like whatever, but like, I, agree. I think New York is the best place for cheap eats, man. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tie, tie this to privacy. So Do it. In, in that vein, Dennis, privacy, I believe does not have to be something that costs millions of dollars to enable and can be enabled with a lot of i don't know cheap's the wrong word but like quick easy wins and simple you guys agree with that yeah i i well i agree i agree that fancy tech and you know bells and whistles are not necessary for a good uh sort of privacy compliance program that being said if you have the resources you should invest them in privacy. I don't think it's something that should be scrappy and like strung together on a budget because it's that important, um, but it doesn't have to be expensive as a rule. Does it depend on your visibility? Like level, Facebook? Well, that's, an, that's an existential question, right? <laughs> like, should you do more because you have a bigger impact and because you know, you're more likely for like to 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 be, you know, pinged or dinged for, for not doing the right thing? Or should you do the right thing because it's the right thing to do? Uh, but, but, but I agree with the premise, by the way, that like to run a solid privacy program, you don't have to have a multi-billion dollar budget, right? If you begin with the premise that you're going to have like a privacy protective approach to your data, right? It's hard to unpack that 
once you've decided or not decided, but once like you're like you've built an open system and it's out there and now it's big and you're getting scrutiny and then you have to like build backward yeah. or unbuild, that's really expensive. Well, yeah, I agree. But I mean, that's like with everything, right? Like right, if right. you build a house and you build it you know, sort of cheaply and crappily, like to fix it is more expensive. It would have been that, cheaper that, to just that. start out, you know, doing the right thing because you can scale, you know, good practices. You can scale sort of privacy by design, trying to, you know, you know, retroactive retrofit privacy into a complex organization mm-hmm. is, hard yes also expensive and requires more resources i think that's right i don't think we're ever going to get to the point where we would really like to be where we can build privacy programs truly from the outset so like what happened when we all met you know was years ago dennis you were at app nexus pedro you're at oracle and i was at data zoo the gdpr happened to us so while we were at those companies you know we were privacy was there and relevant and we were paying attention to, you know, ad tech and the NAI and things that were required of of companies that were processing information in the advertising ecosystem. But the GDPR obviously changed the game, put a lot of requirements on us. And we had to then adapt and look backwards at our systems that weren't built for that necessarily. Then we go to other companies and we do other things at other jobs. And you'd think that maybe, okay, like, if you're joining a company at an early stage or something, you have the ability to build the privacy, you know, infrastructure from scratch. And the truth is you still don't like I joined this, the earliest I've been at this company. And I still, there was still a lot of retroactive work to be done on the system that's built because I don't think people are yet, I say yet in a hopeful way, yet thinking about it early enough in in the early, 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 early stages of business development and companies that are that are processing a lot of data i don't think they're quite there yet i hope that we'll get there so actually i i thought i was going to disagree with your with the premise of what you were saying but i do agree that when it comes to technology companies and and building that like you're never going to be there like when the first line of code is written right um but what but the point that i wanted to raise was that the GDPR did happen to us, but I and I think that things like the GDPR and other legislation will continue to happen. But I think that if you are always pushing the envelope, if you're always trying to be on the cutting edge of privacy, I do think that like the GDPR didn't happen to everybody. Like there were some people who had a few tweaks to do, and like they, you know, I was in private practice at the time, so I was doing a lot of helping companies, you know, pull things together to be prepared. And some of my clients needed a lot more help than others. Like some were like, great, we are pretty much doing, you know, 85% of what's happening. The regulators taking a view on certain things that we took, you know, it was like kind of a spit sign for some folks, not many, but for some. So I think that like, there, I think that there is potential for people to uh, avoid having regulation be the, the, the impetus for pushing uh, privacy practices uh, forward in their organizations. But with respect to like the building of tech, like, yeah, you're never gonna be there at the, you know, at the ground floor. Yeah, and if we're being super honest about it, like, yeah, GDPR happened to us, but not really. Like we, it, you know, particularly ad tech, um, I think the Europeans felt that some data practices had gone too far unchecked. Right. And that's what brought on the regulation. I think a bunch of European regulators sat in a room and then said, let's find some interesting place to regulate them where there are no problems. Right. Like, I, I think they identified some opportunities for improvement, um, weren't seeing it happen at 
in the ways and at the pace that they thought was aligned with European citizens' rights. And so they passed this massive regulation to update the previous directive and clarify spaces. There was I think there's a lot in, and I think there's a lot in what happened with the GDPR. I think that's definitely part of it. I think another part of it is that Europe was feeling, uh, you know, from a uh, competition standpoint, feeling a lot sure. of pressure from American tech companies, sure. knowing that our data practices were different, and that that was a way that they could sort of, you know, stave off, you know, a further, you know, dominance by U.S. tech companies. There's a lot going on there, and a lot was specifically, you know. Uh, targeted toward the digital advertising industry. So I thought that was like, you know, pretty blatant. Dennis, if you had to name like, like a, sorry, Andy, real quick, like if you had to name like the, in your mind, like when I say, what's the top European tech company? What comes to mind? I have struggled with that. I've struggled. I, I struggle. I know there's some really cool companies out there, but like I struggle. Like, 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 Social media companies, or do just you just tech, just tech? Let's go with the broad category of tech, right? So, like, I, so like assuming like, uh, so I would say something like Deliveroo, which is kind of like DoorDash, Uber Eats. Like when I was in London, I was all about the Deliveroo. Um, it, that's the only one I can think of off the top of my head. Yeah, and 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 to your point about like the pressure from American tech companies, I think that's it. Like just like this, you know, like Israel's got the scrape like tech innovation hub and all these really cool startups get swallowed up that come out of Israel, right? Like uh, uh, there's some really cool stuff happening in Asia, right? Particularly China with like all of their apps ecosystem and all the stuff they've built there. Um, but like, yeah, I have trouble. I do know Deliveroo and it is really cool, but like um, I have trouble like conjuring images of European tech companies in my mind. And I think to Dennis's point, that might be part of the reason why the writ regulation is the way it is, is to sort of like level that playing field worldwide with like European expectations of data protection. Curtail is another one, Curtail. If we're gonna be- Oh yeah, you're focus. right, you're right, you're right. There's one right there. Curtail was actually, sadly, one of, was one of the, the big ad tech players on the scene you're for right. a really long time. You're right. Um, I don't know that that's still the case, but there were definitely for a while, one a, a huge player. And then I guess yeah. you've got, I think there are a fair amount of ad tech companies that I've had some time to think. Like you've got I think there's some really cool like European regionals. Like every time I go to Spain, there's all these cool little apps that like do all this cool like regional, not regional, but like all this cool local stuff. Um, it's just hard for me to be like, like, what is that? Like when I think of China, obviously you, like some companies come to mind, right? Alibaba and Tencent and, you know, um, but like when I think of Europe, just it, it, it's harder. Here's a couple, SAP. Yeah, but that's old school. That's, you know, like Siemens. I, yeah, of course. Tech company. SAP's a tech company based in Germany. Yeah. Uh, SAP's a great company, by the way. Shout out to SAP, who I used to deal with all the time. But um, you, I mean, there's some, like, but you're, but you're right. Your point is really well made in the sense that there's no EU Oracle. There's no EU Google. It's not clear. Like, to, to have to find SAP, like, if you went out on the street, and you were like, to, you know, if you went to Times Square, right near the Olive Garden, and you were like, do you know of SAP? Like, how many people yeah. do you think have heard, like, have heard of SAP? They'd be like, you mean TreeSap? Like, <laughs> so I have a question though. So, do we think that part of, do we think that privacy plays into that? Because I, know, I, that, that's where I'm getting. 
according according to you know from a european point of view or from an eu point of view you know it's the wild wild west for data in the you know in the us and so we're able to you know these companies google you know whatever where all these big tech companies are able to do so many innovative things because we're doing all these horrible things quote unquote with with data whereas companies in europe have to play by the rules and maybe that stifles their innovation to some extent maybe that you know uh hinders their ability to grow and and sort of find an audience and really build the kind of um companies that that we've been able to build here i, I don't know the answer to that question but it's an interesting one i think yeah I, I, you know i don't know but i i think there's something to the like privacy nexus with like um you know, like the cultivating of tech companies in Europe. And, and, and I do agree with Dennis, like perception or not there, I think there was this energy around like European companies are a disadvantage because the rest of the world does whatever they want. And like European companies have to follow these, you know, the old directive, which wasn't exactly like loosey goosey either. Um, and so when GDPR has this like long tail of application, you know, globally, it sort of balances the playing field, but three years later, from GDPR, like I still don't know the like I, I don't know that like all these tech companies emerged in Europe now because the level playing field has the playing field has been leveled a little bit. I, I don't know. Another European tech company, Revolut, it's fintech. I would say this though, if we're gonna talk about tech companies in Europe and 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 the next to privacy, I feel like fintech will always is gonna be the next frontier for like big tech companies. And I think it's definitely gonna come out of Europe because they've got an open, or EU especially, because they've got an open banking system. When I was over there, do you know that if I went out to a restaurant with my friends and I paid and I needed my money back, they could just be like, give me your bank details and I'd have it in an hour. That's right. Like, no, they, they are it, like, every time so I go far to advanced. Europe, they're leaps and bounds ahead of us on all FinTech, it's not close. Um, and I'll tell you where else, like telecom, like the telecom interoperability in Europe, every country has its own telecom companies and they all are interoperable and you can move seamlessly across the continent with good signal. And that is a like amazing tech achievement that even in the US where we only have three or four big telecoms, like it, it's nowhere near, I think, just like the level of interoperability. This is just strange. It, 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 the intersection of privacy and all that is something someone should study who's much smarter than me. But I, my, my, my instincts tell me that there's some intersection there between like, like the non like app rapid development kind of Silicon Valley mentality, um, not really being obvious in Europe. Uh, Dennis, you've worked on both sides of the pond. Um, what do you learn from each side that you can apply in the other? In other words, like, what did you learn when you were working on the, you know, across the Atlantic that you now implement in your work here? And what do you take from here when you work there? Does it matter or is this just a dumb question? I don't think it's a dumb question. Um, I don't think it's a dumb question. What I would say is that I think among some circles, at least in the US, privacy, at least at one point, was kind of a thing that people did and it was like necessary and you could get really good at it, but it wasn't something that people took particularly serious. I think that that has since changed. Sure. I think it's always been serious in Europe. It's a human right, um, it's a human right. Um, and there's a lot of historical reasons why it is a human right and why people take it so seriously. And so I think that, you know, it, you're seeing a lot now in the US where consumers, I read somewhere where consumers are just 
you know, in the U.S. are just outraged at all this stuff that's happening. I think that the U.S. or sort of Western, you know, post, you know, outside of Europe, it's gotten more conscious about data and data practices and their own data. Um, I don't think that that consciousness is new in Europe. I think that people have always been very conscious of information and data, digital or not, that people are, uh, you know, that people have about them, you know, and I think it's it's historical, I think it's cultural. And I said, so I think um, taking the view that this is not just about compliance or, you know, mitigating regulatory risk, but that this is at the end of the day about people, I think it's something that I took from my time in Europe. And I think something that I, you know, in the US, it's very, we, we tend to, um, or at least my experience, we tend to, to look at the law and say, well, like, but what are we trying to achieve? You know, it's not as much about, um, it's about being compliant, obviously, but, you know, I think there's a lot of letter of the law versus, you know, what do we think actually achieves the end that the law is seeking to- That's to, the spirit of the law. Yeah, it's very much that. And so I think it's a melding of, for me, you know, how, how does this impact people and what are we trying to do to serve people? And like, how do we do that in a way that sort of achieves the end that the law is seeking to achieve for those individuals? Because I do think that sometimes the, 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 letter, the letter of the law does not, has lots of unintended consequences. I think that's and doesn't why the GDPR is so, is sometimes so polarizing for people here in the US because, you know, we, we talked about this a lot, like it doesn't, the rights afforded people under the GDPR, the, the, the actual question that Pedro raises a lot is that making people's privacy better? Do they have an actual, have they actually achieved a privacy benefit? Are Europeans better off than everyone else in some way that I can measure when it comes to privacy after GDPR. I, I, I'm not saying they're not, but I just- I think, it I think it depends on what you mean by better. I okay. think that it's a huge step in the right direction that you can now, you have a right to access your data, right? You have a right to delete it, right? So I think that there's something else that you, you find a lot in Europe is this property right, um, this property right perspective of privacy. Like my data is mine, I have, uh, you know, a right to ownership of that. And so I should be able to control it in some way. And so telling people that we, you can, we will show you everything we, we have on you. You can delete it, you can correct it, you can access it. Like the ability to manage the data that someone else holds about you, I think is huge because I don't think that you could do much of that in the US um, prior to GDPR. You'd be really hard. I mean, the only thing I think of is like Axiom's data you know corrector tool where you could go and they'd say oh we've got all the stuff about you and you could fix it that existed prior to G gdpr but like it wasn't something that was very ubiquitous here you're right absolutely and in, in the sense that it also didn't exist in places that uh that people didn't find easy to access so like if you knew to look at axiom maybe you would but if you like post gdpr post ccpa I can go to Chipotle and say, delete all the data you have about me. And that might not have been a thought in my mind before then, or, or, or British Airways or like whatever company, whether it's a 
hardcore tech company or whether it's just a service provider that uses a lot of technology. Pedro uses the example of Domino's Pizza quite a lot, quite a bit, because you know you don't ultimately think of them as a tech company. There's a lot of tech flowing through that platform. The, the ordering platform you mentioned, you, the three of us think of that as a tech company, but people probably think of that as a food delivery service, right? Enabled by a tech app. But the fact that you can go and you can make corrections and you can ask them about data and that's well known, I agree that's important and it helps people, but I also don't know the answer to like, how does that actually make me feel better about things? Does it? Because it's my data is still everywhere. <laughs> so, I mean, that's an interesting question for me because I, I spent a lot, of, and Pedro knows this, I spent a lot of time thinking about because to me, privacy is an existential thing, right? Like part of how I got into it is because I think it's super philosophical and it's super interesting to me. But the question is when you, you know, you go back to like Warren and Brandeis article about the right to be left alone and the photograph and the camera and all that. But when you think about it, like what, what is privacy to me? What is it to you? What is it to Pedro? I think it's, it's very personal, right? It's very personal. And so I think it's, not helpful in this space to think of it about what is or isn't more private and thinking about encryption and all of that. I think those are all very helpful tools. I think it's, it, I think it would be, we'd be well served to think about what harms are we trying to avoid? What harms are we trying to mitigate against? Because I think that is something that is more scalable and more applicable, you know, across, you know, what my particular view of privacy is versus, uh, versus yours, right? I, it, and so, so I mean, I try to I, I try to approach my privacy counseling in that way about you know what are we trying what harms are we trying to avoid and how can we achieve that? Because if you try to find privacy, I think you're just gonna go in circles. Yeah, I think that's true. And also, I think not only do individuals think about what privacy means to them differently from each other, um, there's also regional notions of privacy, and they're different. Okay, like, you know, I'm from the, you know, I, I, I was born in Europe by chance, but like I come from a Caribbean family background, like our notions of privacy are very different than like a white Anglo-Saxon American notion of privacy, you know, like, if you just think of the US, it's very like my doors closed, we live in sleep neighborhood suburbs, like, you know, sleep only in the suburbs and, and like, you know, don't let your kids outside and everything is about excluding others from like this, like private little space. I think Europe is a lot similar, but like in a Cuban Caribbean family, like every door is open, everybody walks in and out, everybody has keys, to everybody's house, like, you know, friends, family just show up whenever unannounced and storm in and go into your refrigerator. And we, we like culturally, we're open in a different way with broader groups or different types of groups, depending on where we're from and who we are. So I worry sometimes about the fact that because the developed world, and when I say that, I really mean the West, I mean Europe and the United States, has this tremendous power to project its interests and its values and its customs, that we may be a little paternalistic in the way that like elite privacy thinkers from the West think that everyone else needs to operate and aren't asking enough questions in like places like India and China and South America and Africa, um, which contain very different cultures inside of each, by the way, about like what's appropriate for privacy to you. Um, what do you think about that, Dennis? Like, should, like, is a more regional approach appropriate? Should we define like a universal uh, like way of thinking about privacy? Like, I've always been at this school that 
there's no one size, you know, fits all when it comes to privacy. I think speaking practically, you've definitely got to have sort of a, a, a broader framework, but I definitely think there needs to be room to, um, you know, to, to, to uh, customize rather for specific regions, because I think it is problematic. And I think it also depends, right? I think it totally depends on like your company or what you're doing. And like, I think it depends on a lot of things, but I do think that we can't continue to apply this one size fits all or what often happens is, you know, and I've seen this across all of my jobs, across all the things I've done is we'll do X for Europe and then we'll do something else for everywhere else because Europe, you know, is king when it comes to privacy and everywhere else, it's not that important or it's not as the, the risks are lower. And I think that is just a bad approach generally for a number of reasons. But I think it's, you know, what does it mean when you decide that you're going to give a certain region of people more privacy versus another? And I think that plays back to your questions. Like as we start to think, if we if you were to take the approach of varying your 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 um, approach to by region, do we get to a say a place where we don't have a standard level of protection or we're not protecting against the same harms, you know, across, you know, all of a company's users. And like, is that okay? And should it be okay for, you mentioned about like what approach a company or an organization would take in a region. But I think it's also okay for the region to tell a company what approach it needs to take there, right? Like, I think it's okay. Oh, no, for absolutely. Argentina and I think to say, that. Well, we don't, we don't think about exactly. I don't, we don't think about privacy exactly like the Europeans. We have these idiosyncrasies, um, and these are this is what applies here. And Brazil, for Brazil, to do the same thing, right? Or, I mean, but to be honest with you, in, before the GDPR, you had the same in Europe, right? Like every right. European country didn't, you know, a EU country rather didn't have the exact thing they had you know the germans and you know french were were much more strict and you know other places were much more lax so i think that like what we're seeing now is the gdpr i think you know triggered a lot of things i think it triggered other countries um who decided i'm tired of europe getting or the eu getting you know certain privacy rights we want them to and if, if legislation is what it takes we'll draft it and I think that now, and, and I think countries <clears throat> used GDPR as a prototype because it did have such a, a, a strong response from, or, from organizations around the world. But I do think you're going to see a lot of personalization. I don't think countries or, or regulators outside of Europe feel beholden to GDPR. I just think it's a nice template for them to use. Look at e-privacy, right? E-privacy has not been able to pass. And so there's still a whole bunch of variability going on around, I don't know, cookies, device, device used data. There's a different approach in every country with respect to, and I feel this pain a lot with respect to like, like marketing a company in those regions. Like for each country, I need to do a separate analysis on how to market into that, that country because so much of it is digital <laughs> and, and digital marketing is touched by privacy so much and the privacy uh, regulation is not is not there yet. So we have this, the existing cookie rules, which are again, difficult to construe against the GDPR. <laughs> so let me ask a question. Like, Let me ask this question because this is interesting to me. You brought up cookies, which 
you know, are the bane of my existence. But, um, you know, so what do you think about consent? Because I feel like there's this huge shift all of a sudden that consent, 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 everybody needs to consent. Um, and, and do we think that consent actually helps us achieve, you know, the goals that we're after when it comes to privacy and, and protecting users? I've me? got a lot of yeah. yeah I mean, it's for I, either. Go for it, Andy. And there's always this tension, Dennis, because the GDPR created this concept of, you know, not taking data and forcing users into some sort of activity based on the fact that you asked them to process their data. So it just it just breaks ad tech in a lot of ways because the ad supported internet requires the data in order to deliver on that promise. And so if you, if you back that out, then you get the sort of the ethical argument about access to certain services and what is, what are my rights with respect to access to the internet and certain services and free content versus paid platforms. And it just goes very spirally very quickly. And so I, but I think what we all thought might happen has happened and that's that even though there's a debate over consent or there's there's a challenge with how you how you sort of collect consent on websites and whether you uh, are able to deliver ads based on that the actual practice that we've seen has been to continue doing that to have people accept cookies and deliver content because you know lo and behold it's what people want and there's a huge massive advertising machine revenue creation engine powering major companies and publishers in Europe that like even a regulator can't disrupt it. And so I think we've just seen market power continue to dominate in that area and the consent mechanism sort of slips away in, in, in some sense in terms of um, I guess technically you're getting they you're getting consent, but you're also still able to kind of condition that on on the ability to deliver something someone wants. But what see here's where I get tripped up, right? Like the obsession with consent troubles me because, like the European GDPR sort of definition, you know, it's like uh, what is it informed and and unambiguous and unambiguous unambiguous right unambiguous and informed informed consent. right yeah. so. We look at like cookie banners. We look at what you know banners on websites that are seeking consent for 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 tracking, right? How many people do you actually think are unambiguously and informedly clicking OK on that? Like, just to be serious. Like, let, 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 let's be serious. Almost none. I do this for a living, and I can't. I was gonna say, are you guys are you guys reading these suckers? So is it no? Really I can't. Like, I'm not working those days. So like, right, I can't. Right, right. <laughs> so on a Saturday, on a Friday night, when I download the new app. And I'm trying to do my thing and I've got to go through, like, I don't read the toss. I definitely don't read the privacy statement. And I also don't read this, this consent uh, banner or whatever it is, right? Doesn't matter how simple you make it. Like the idea that I'm actually doing it is silly because we know people aren't. And so, but there, that's one problem. The other problem is what you're doing is you're saying to the consumer, you've got homework. You've got to learn about this. I was you, just going to say, yeah, I you've think- got the burden to inform yourself. You've got the burden to decide that you have made this decision uh, voluntarily and without ambiguity. Like that is extremely un like unreasonable to ask people when we know they have to answer these questions 
about consent and permission a thousand times a day now because it's being you know pre uh, reprompted over and over by different companies they do business with. I just don't know that it's a good model because it puts a lot of pressure on people, and so they just ignore it as I would and I do. Right. So, but I hear, here's the thing. I think that the, I think the reason why people rely on consent is is, is is exactly what you said. It 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 puts the onus on users to know what they're getting themselves into. But to me, that goes back to transparency, right? And the reason why consent is being pushed in a digital ads environment is because there was so little transparency for such a long time. And I and when you don't know, you make things up, right? Like right. the problem feels like much more extreme, much more terrible. We can we like we're reading your diary, like all of these terrible things because we didn't know. And the more you don't know, the more you can fantasize about what's happening. And so yeah. I think this push to consent is really at the heart of it is about transparency. It's about if you make someone consent, you have to disclose all this stuff. So now as a regulator, I know that this person has been provided with all the risks up front. It's kind of like on the cigarette package, right? Like if you smoke cigarettes, like all these bad health things can happen. But if you want to still buy the cigarette, like, you know, we can't stop you. I th it feels very much like that type of a situation. And I agree. I don't necessarily know that it is functioning in, as a warning label in the way that I think uh, regulators had envisioned because people can't be bothered. Is it, it counterbalanced, Dennis, by the rights that we were discussing before? Because, because in, in Pedro's example, I think about the face swap app. Remember that like thing yeah, people yeah. were doing and they were clicking through and they were doing it and then they realized some things were happening with their data and lots of people probably went in and deleted deleted that app or delete you know asked for deletion and maybe those rights didn't didn't exist in the same ease of finding them and accessing them before. So I wonder, I wonder maybe there is at least you're giving consumers a lever. So I do think, yeah, I agree. I totally agree that um, I, I completely agree that some of the new rights that have come with these different you know, uh, pieces of privacy legislation definitely help to counterbalance that. But I also think that there's a certain level of like sophistication that is required, right? Like and some, time. some, yeah, and some users, and let's be fair, some of these controls and how to access your rights, like it's not easy. They exist now and you have to tell people about them. But I, I have you tried to like Netflix or something have, or, or whatever company, have you tried to go in and see like how you can exercise some of these rights? Like it is not super easy. Or we talked intuitive. about this on the podcast, right, Andy? Like, like I can barely figure out how to exercise my rights and it takes sometimes an hour with just one organization, right? If I really want to figure out like, are you a processor, are you a controller, where, where's this stuff sitting? And I've got to go through all of these processes and send emails or fill out forms. That's one company. Now imagine if I make a, I just decide I want to check all the ones on my phone. I have no idea how many apps are on my phone because Apple doesn't make that easy for me to know, but there's pages and pages of apps. So if I just wanted to know what my phone is doing, that would be a full-time job. I would have a job. Like it would be my job. Yeah, but you know, it doesn't stop at your phone, right? Because presumably some of those right, apps are not phone. mobile device apps. Those are like desktop apps or not, you know, apps that are connected to like other systems. So like it is quite complicated. So I, I, I think that it's, I think the rights and the controls are definitely a step in the right direction. But I think 
transparency is something that's being missed in all this, you know, having all the WYSI tools and having all the, you know, the different rights, like if users don't really understand what's happening and they don't have a good way of making that risk assessment, because I think people don't know, right? People don't know what the impact of these daily decisions of signing up and giving their email and giving this data to all these different companies, they don't understand what that means for them five, 10 years down the line. They don't understand what that means for them tomorrow. They know that they want to get food delivered to them because we're in a pandemic and they can't be bothered to cook another meal. And so they're going to, you know, download DoorDash and like get a burger from the restaurant down the street that might be struggling. Like that's what they know. No one is thinking in that moment oh my gosh, my credit card is going in there. And now they're going to know what kind of food I eat. And is this going to somehow find its way to my health insurance company? Like, you know, these are the things that people aren't thinking about. And you, as, as Pedro, as you mentioned, no one can be expected to be doing this kind of risk analysis in those moments. I think it's that's unfair. right. And, and, and this is where I think other industries have gotten it much better. And this is not a perfect example, but I think it's a good one. Like if you look at the movie rating system in the United States, right? MPAA. Yeah. So if you look at the if you look at that system, there's like five ratings or whatever it is, right? Um, there's like G, PG, PG thirteen, R, and whatever the adult one is, I forget. Um, so you've got like these five ratings. It doesn't put the pressure on a parent to watch the movie before the kid to decide if the kid should watch the movie. It is sort of an intuitive way to say to a parent, like. These are the categories that we place movies in. When you go decide to watch a movie in one of these categories, you can expect generally some of the following, right? Um, and so like, you know, with G, it's gonna be relatively safe. You know, with PG, there might be some minor adult themes. You know, with PG-13, there's gonna be some violence and some sexual content. And then, you know, with R, there's gonna be a lot of violence, and a lot of sexual content. It's gonna be more explicit and there's gonna be language. Like, I know that, and I've never gone to read what these things mean. I just know that. I've never gone think, to NPAA's website to do anything. And so it's a good tool. And maybe we should think about privacy disclosure and transparency in similar ways. Yeah, maybe but that's, that's like the new, so two things. I agree, but I think NPAA works because it is um, like generally accepted. It's ubiquitous. Like it's everyone understands it. I, I think what you're, sound, what you're talking about a proposing kind of sounds like nutrition labels, which I have a lot of thoughts about, and I don't know that we have time. But to the nutrition labels as they are right now are impossible. Like those aren't helpful. No, I right? agree. But I mean, you're, that's kind of what you're talking about. So I have been an advocate in my sort of professional circles of a long time of sort of like curated privacy, you know, sort of palettes, right? So like, if you could say, I have a high risk tolerance, then you could go in and like, there will be default settings for people who are high risk or people who have a, you know, who are, are like kind of like uh, stock portfolios. You could just click a button and say like, I'm in this category. And so my settings will be deep by default configured for my risk tolerance with respect to all these different kinds of things. I think that's similar to what you're saying. Um, I, I think with the I think the problem with the the nutrition label and the MPAA thing is that it doesn't change it, right? It just calls out what the risk is and the user doesn't have an opportunity to make informed decisions. Like they can accept it or not accept it, but who's not gonna use their banking app, right? Yeah, that's a fair point. I would say though, the problem with the current like nutrition label approach is that it's being dictated by a couple of players, right? Like the no, NBA- I'm not, I'm not advocating the, for it. I'm I don't just know, saying- I, I, but, but I guess what I'm suggesting is if we could figure out as an industry, when I say industry, I mean platforms, 
social media platforms, like device platforms, ad tech ecosystem, and just come up with a framework that is understandable for human beings. Like our transparency capacity would go way up. But like, I just don't think there's a will to cooperate in the way that there have been in other like content generating industries. And I'm not sure exactly why that is. Remember, I'm not saying nutrition label is the right answer or movie restriction caveats are the right answer, but like cooperation probably is. And I just don't see enough of it. I got the answer. Do you remember, do you remember, uh, well, I don't have the exact answer, but remember when we talked to Zollner, Derek Zollner, and yeah. he told a story about a big TV executive and being approached by Google and Google being like, this is back, you know, years ago, showing him all the things they could do with respect to tracking and ROI and advertising. And he was like, stop, stop. This is my cash cow. Like you yeah. can't, the, 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 the blindness of the box is my cash cow. So like, there's some of that going on here for I think sure. You're probably right. The, the opacity of the system and the depth at which tech moves faster and faster and faster. Like that's the secret sauce in some sense. Um, I think, I think you're probably right. right. I think you're both probably right. And I, I hear Dennis on the limits of the capacity to create like some sort of unified well, way. Of, go, go the thing of, I know that so, so like the, the point I was trying to make about the MPAA thing and like the default settings is that like, it tells you the risk, right? But here's the thing about the MPAA ratings. I wrote a paper about this in cookies like long, long time ago. And I actually don't remember what it said, but I do remember that I referenced the MPAA. Oh, like nice. a framework. And I think the thing about that is, is that people, they edit movies, right? They edit movies based on a set of criteria so that it fits into the category. So like in order for something like that to work, even nutrition labels, you can't just like tell people what you're doing and then say like, we think we're about an X, right? There needs to be a common framework for what yeah. makes you an X also, and what that means for your back end and what also, that means for your data practices. And yeah, like, I think that's right. I think that's actually a really good point. We have to jet here, but also I would say your engineers will kill you. Like as oh, a privacy sure. lawyer, you're 100%. Like, I don't think we're going to get that. Yeah, I think you go backwards. Right. My engineering team would be like freaking out. So last question. I've got one yeah. last question. Go ahead, buddy. Go ahead. If any of the Ninja Turtles could be a privacy lawyer, which one should it be and why? Oh, what would be Michelangelo? <laughs> he was the most responsible. I think I feel like Donatello is like the prototype of the current privacy lawyer, but I would like to see more Michelangelo. I actually agree with that. Who, which which turtle uses the nunchucks? Oh, that's, that's Michelangelo. Okay, so to, yeah, to, me, to me, that weapon represents privacy the most. We're like, <laughs> <laughs> because it's just like a sear it's like a pretzel right he's con like it's constantly like <laughs> twisting itself around and flipping flipping on its head right the other the other um weapons to me feel sort of surgical <laughs> what about uh, I, the, um what about um Raphael? he had the the the, um, the, size, the, the size. size yeah he had the size, size. those are i feel like Raphael takes on the good persona of the regulator <laughs> he's kind of grumpy he's really smart he's a good fighter he's like um, super aggressive as well so he's a little he's... aggressive <laughs> maybe the regulator has the stick though yeah <laughs> well yeah. they're just like that trying to bash things the thing about donatello with the bow or whatever it is why do i know all these weird ninja things um is because he's he's smart like he's the he's the quirky nerdy one of the group um 
But anyway, yeah, I think it's Michelangelo. We need more fun and privacy. And I think we need people to be a little bit more lighthearted about all of this. Um, and I, we'd probably get a lot more done. Good stuff. Thanks, Dennis. Great conversation. Thanks. This was awesome. All right. Are we done? Did you yeah, finish? I think, yeah, we'll refer. Oh, man. Dennis, that was great, man. That was, a, that was a pretty seamless episode. Low editing energy on that one, for sure. Yeah, well, was, compared to the last one, that one, this one was an A+. Yeah, oh, my God. We, had, we did one. I can't tell you with who, Dennis. But like, we did the last one, and at the end of it, Andy and I were both like, that's never seen the light of day. Oh, <laughs> like, no. There's no way. That one's going in the crates, man. It was bad. It was bad. It was bad. Oh, no. Not that was bad. Well, that was fun. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for joining us, man. Thanks for yep. joining us. And um, to, uh, it, it, when you move back across the pond, if you do, um, we'll do a European version of part two. I think it'll be super fun. I think so, too. Sounds great. Yeah. Thanks. All right, man. Take care. Later. Bye.